would open your Bible to Romans chapter 30, chapter 30, chapter 3. So, yeah, exactly, yeah. <laughs> yeah, George is using the Passion Translation again. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> uh, <laughs> all right. And just stay there, and we'll get there in just a few minutes. Um, so we've been on this journey, walking through the gospel message, taking a look at the gospel message, and we're still kind of working our way through these foundational background uh, issues so that we understand what we're looking at. And I look at it as kind of like buying a house. You know, before you start decorating the rooms, go look at the foundation. Make sure it's something you want to you wanna decorate, right? Um, uh, which is something I wish I did before we bought ours, but, you know, I didn't. You, know, you live and learn, it's just the way it works. Um, but uh, last week we looked at that, that question, are we saved by election or choice? And uh, today I want to explore that, uh, that crazy idea of choice. We looked at election last week. Um, and we're going to be doing two things today. We're going to be looking at that question, is faith a work? And we're going to be looking at the passage in Ephesians 1. I would have loved to have done eight, uh, Romans 8.29, but it's just too much. Um, but we'll be, we'll be getting to those. Uh, you know, I'm fine doing it, but I'm sure you guys would like to get home some point in time today. So, um, but just to remind you with the context of the conversation, last week, what we talked about, we talked about that Calvinist tulip, uh, and we looked at the idea that mankind is, you know, so wicked, so depraved, so twisted, so evil, that we are just incapable of ever doing anything that even remotely smells like it might have been good at one point in time. Even to the point where we're not able to believe the gospel on our own. God has to pre-save us so we can get saved, which is, if it seems weird to you, it's because it is. Um... The idea, well, come on in. Um, yeah. Uh, the idea that Jesus did not come to die for, our sin, for the sins of all, but only for the sins of a special few. Those few were known as the elect. Uh, and be, uh, because according to the Calvinist view, God pre-selected some people before the foundations of the earth to go to heaven, and he pre-selected some to go to hell. And there's nothing you can do to change that. Free will doesn't exist. Choice doesn't exist. We are all just, a- just acting out the script, so to speak. That, that's the idea of election. And so... The topic we're, topic we're dealing with today is how the Bible supports free will and not election, um, which, to be honest, is an extremely unpopular topic with a lot of groups. Uh, I was part of a group at one point uh, just because I like to have this, the discussions, and sometimes I like to needle people um, because it's sort of fun sometimes. Um, you just like to point out problems with some people's thinking, uh, and I was looking at the rules on this Facebook group on how to comment. And they, they redid the rules. They said, for those of you part of this group, we want to let you know that we will no longer tolerate your heretical views of free will. <laughs> and I just asked, do you really think that you should put free will in the category of heresy? <laughs> As in not able to be saved anymore? You're just, you know, you know, do not pass go, just go straight to hell. I mean, is that, is that really where you want to put the idea of someone who believes in free choice? And I got to tell you, the, the vitriol that came down on me at that point was... Um, unexpected. Very, very unexpected. Um, I, I was called amazing names in print. Uh, I should have screenshotted it before I left the group, uh, but I decided it was just time to get out bef- before, um, you know, I don't know, if they, I don't know if you can skip on the way out uh, when they throw you out of a group in Facebook, but I'm pretty sure that was, that was what was happening in a lot of people's minds. Um, I was told that uh, if uh, my, 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 uh, uh, my name on Facebook is Pastor George Gray, and uh, uh, one of the comments was, if you're even a pastor, and I doubt you were because no one would be dumb enough to listen to someone who has this view, I feel bad for your church. 
thought, wow, all I did was ask the question whether or not free will should be put in the same category as heresy. Uh, but this is, it's just not a welcome topic in a lot of conversations, um, which is unfortunate because I don't, I, don't, I, don't, I don't get why it's an issue. So the idea is that if you look at free will and you allow free will, somehow that free will violates the sovereignty of God. So if you allow that Christians have free will in any way, in anything in their life, no matter what it is, it violates the sovereignty of God because the sovereignty of God means he has to have control over everything in your life, no matter how small the detail. That only, he can only be sovereign if that's, if that's the case. Now, I would argue that God, in his sovereignty, gave us the right to choose. Right? And one of the main reasons that I hold to this view comes from a passage in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27, and it says, And it is appointed for men to die once, but after this, the judgment. And you might think that's a little kind of a weird verse to, to, to completely deny Calvinism on. But let me, let me help you, exp- let me explain this to you. Um, here is a truth that, that everyone needs to come into, uh, 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 to terms with. We all die. Right? At some point in time, this chiseled body of mine, there's a lot of things you can do with a chisel. <laughs> some of them are flat, some of them are round. It's just kind of the way it works, you know. At some point, this body of mine and yours is going to get to the point where it can no longer mechanically sustain itself. That's, how, that's why we die. Something happens where our body, so much of our body shuts down, the, the rest of our body just goes, I'm done. <laughs> yeah, we're, uh, we're, we're finished. You know, just lights out, we're done. And it just shuts off. The biology that is holding the spiritual you just shuts off. And when that happens, the real you, the spiritual you, returns to the place where God resides. That's the first half of the promise in this passage in Hebrews. That when this body ends, we will return to wherever God resides. There's another half to this, to this promise, because this is a promise. The other half of this promise is that we will be judged. Well, now, hang on a second. This creates a problem, because judged for what? Judged against What? You see, if there is no possibility of changing the pathway of your life, you don't have the option of doing anything different. The very idea of judging means that the person is being judged, whether good or bad, had the option of doing things different. Now, over my career, I've been in a number of culinary competitions, and there's always these, these parameters that you meet. It's not just taste and presentation, knife skills, what you do with your waist, you know, how organized you are, your professionalism, how dirty your uniform is at the end. These are all elements of the competition. And the person who hits those markers and does it the best wins. Now, on the flip side, when you're being judged against something bad, there are still parameters that if you would have hit those parameters, you would not have been judged. I'll give you a quick example. If I'm flying through town doing 85 miles an hour, and there's a police officer sitting down at Dollar General, and I pass them, and woo, the lights come on, they, take, they chase me down the road, and I get stopped. And I say, officer, I don't understand. I didn't hurt anybody. 
It doesn't matter. There were a set of parameters which I violated. Therefore, the judgment is righteous. I get a ticket. I get points off my license. I get to pay more for my insurance. And Jay gets to laugh at me forever. Right? So if God were to bring a judgment of guilt, it's a judgment of guilt that carries an inescapable eternal punishment. Inescapable eternal punishment. But all I did what was what, is what, what I was pre-programmed to do. I didn't have the ability to go right or left. What I did was actually the will of God. How can I be judged guilty of violating the will of God? Do you see the problem? Judgment demands choice. Now, I've heard some Calvinists say, well, what you don't understand is that God is so perfect, he can judge the innocent guilty and it's still good. Like, that is the stupidest thing I've ever heard in my life. That's like getting a speeding ticket while parked. I noticed you were coming out of Walmart and you've been in there for eight hours working. I'm going to have to give you a speeding ticket. I'm sorry, what? No, there's nothing righteous about that. And the will of God must be righteous because God cannot be unrighteous. So God cannot violate his own standards just because. So the idea that we will stand before God in judgment demands that there is a choice for us to follow or not. Now, and, uh, so there's got to be a better way of doing this. Now, I'm going to illustrate this with this highly technical prop. It took me a long time to find this. Now, I want you to, to, to think about this. So this is a jug of water. Okay, maybe it's not a jug, it's a jar. Now, this jar is in my hand. Now, I'm not in the jar, right? I might fit. I mean, don't, don't get me wrong. It's possible. But I'm not in the jar. I'm actually outside of the jar. And because I'm outside of the jar, I'm not bound by any of the constraints in the jar. Only the water is. But because I'm outside of it, I can see everything that's going on inside this jar. If I wanted to, I could look in to the interactions between subatomic particles. There is nothing that happens in this jar that I cannot observe. From the, from the beginning of it to the end of it. I can see all of it at the same time. Why? Because I'm outside of it. Now, at the same time, because I'm outside of it, I can do whatever I want with this jar. I am sovereign over this jar of water. Nothing else in my life, but I am sovereign over this jar. I'm not even sovereign over my dogs. They don't listen to me. They, okay, one of them does, but he's deaf, and I don't really know if he understands. But I have total sovereignty over this jar because I'm not in it. I'm the one who created it, okay? Now, do I have to exercise my sovereignty over this jar of water to have sovereignty over this jar of water? No. I have sovereignty whether the jar admits it or not. Whether or not the jar of water agrees with my sovereignty is irrelevant. I wish parents understood that more about their children sometimes. The kids don't have to agree with you and they don't have to like you. They just have to listen. Mostly. 
That's a side note, by the way, just, just moving right along. So if you were to look at this as our universe, God created our universe. He's outside of that universe. He is not bound by what we call space or time. God is immaterial and timeless. And because he is outside of that, he can see the beginning from the end. God can observe all time happening at all times. This is a little bit mind-bending, but you think about this. All of human history has already happened where God is, wherever he resides. All of human history has already happened, and it's all, all, it's all still happening at the same time. And he can see it because he's outside of it. He knows how everything plays out through all of history because it's already happened. He's already seen it. It's pretty amazing when you think about it. God is not waiting for the time to tick away. He's not looking at his watch at time. I don't, I don't know. No, there is a pre-appointed time where Jesus will return because God has already said it in history. It's already done. So there's no, this is why there's no surprises to God. And this is what messes with people. Like, well, if God already knows, then he, 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 then he chose it all to happen. No, he didn't. I might be able to see everything that's going on inside this, but I didn't choose for any of it to happen. All I did was create the jar. The water is interacting as it does. And I'm allowing it to in my sovereignty. Do you understand? God does not have to force his will upon us in order to be sovereign over us. He's sovereign over us because he is. He has the power and the ability to do anything he wants at any point in time he wants, and he has the ability to make us do whatever he wants at any point in time he wants, but in his sovereignty, he has chosen to allow you to make your own destiny. You choose where you're going to end up, smoking or none. There's your choice. You choose where you will be at the end of days when your body shuts off and you return to wherever God resides. And that's in his sovereignty. God does not have to impose his will on us in order to have will over us. But if God knows everything, then he knew that some people would sin and be lost. Why would God create a people knowing that so many would reject him? The answer is actually quite simple in my mind. This is my own opinion. Um, because he, he knew some would be lost, but he also knew that some wouldn't be. You're going to bake some cookies and you know that one might burn. Do you just not bake the cookies? Bake the cookies and then bring them to my house, and I will take care of them for you. No, you don't. That's actually the risk of the process. Some will, some won't. God is looking for the ones who will say yes. That's what he wants. It's because we have a choice. The fact that God gave us a choice actually reinforces, in my mind, his sovereignty. He could have just, you think about this, at the, when, when Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, he could have ended it right then and started over. 
But there was something about humanity that he wanted that he knew that there was a cost in creating. If he just started it over and recreated a new Adam and Eve with the same basic moral makeup, we're going to make the same mistake. That's probably what God did. There's nothing that's going to be different. Because when you, when you allow free will, this is what happens. Some say yes, some say no. It's just the way it works out. So God, in his sovereignty, wanted to make a way for us to come back to him. Instead of just starting over, he gave us what we call the gospel, the good news. And the good news is that we can return to what we were created to be. We don't have to be in this state for the rest of our lives. We don't have to be in a fallen, broken place. We don't have to wander this world lost. We can come back to God and and regain what was lost. We can become what we were created to be. I look back at the garden and what we were created to be was beings who could walk with God. Because that's what Adam and Eve did. God would visit them in the the cool of the day and we would walk with them. That's what we were made to be. That's, what I, that's where I want to end up. I want to end up as, as someone who can walk side by side with God and live. But that means something's got to change in my life. But with all that in mind, the idea of choice, do we still, still do we save ourselves? And of course, the answer is no. Our salvation comes from one place and one place alone, and that is the person of Christ Jesus and his work on the cross of Calvary. That's how we were saved. Salvation is, is and always will be a free gift of grace, not by anything that you do on your own. So now, what the people on the election side say is, no, if you accept that gift, then you have done something to earn the salvation, and therefore, faith is a work. Like, really? Is faith a work? Is faith the, the energy that we put forward to actually accept the, the, the grace of God, or is faith something different? I think it's something different. And the Bible, I think, agrees. And in Romans chapter 3, starting in verse 20, let's read through some of these these sections. Let us into this. The very first verse says, Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. Okay, so in short, the law does not save. There is nothing about the law that saves. All the law does is inform us of what is right and is wrong. Even the law of atonement did not save. It was the blood of the lamb that saved. The law just showed us how to do it. The law is just a method. The law itself does not save. Christ saves because he is the fulfillment of the law. Before Christ, when they would would kill a lamb for their sins, that lamb was the fulfillment of the law at that time. But that's not what it is. Christ is our offering. So Christ has completed that for us. Verse 21, it says, But now the righteousness of God, apart from the, uh, from the law, is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God, through faith in Jesus Christ. Whoops, my connection just died. That was bad. There we go. To all, uh, uh, to all and on all who believe, for there is no difference. For all have sinned and, and fall short of the glory of God. Simple terms, we're all in the same boat. We are all lost. There's no difference between sinner. You're a sinner, I'm a sinner, they're a sinner. We're all a sinner. 
every single one of us, doesn't matter how sweet your kid is, they're still a little sinner. And I know you know that, right? God's righteousness is now visible outside the law in the person of Jesus and will be available to all who believe. The key word there is believe. What you're going to find is the word believe and faith are interchangeable in most of the New Testament scriptures. Verse 24, it says, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation, I'll explain what that means in a second, by his blood through faith. What was it that didn't save us before? The law. What saves us now? Faith. Notice that they're separated. To demonstrate his righteousness because his, in his forbearance, God had passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. First couple of verses shows us that the law does not save, but Jesus is the one who justifies everyone who has faith, everyone who believes. How do you know you have faith? You follow his word. We learn that in the rest of the New Testament. It's actually the, what the, the, the passage, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, that's actually what it means. It's to have faith, to follow, in, uh, to follow Christ. In verse 27, it says, where is the boasting? It is excluded. Uh, by what law? Of, uh, of, of, of works? No, but the law of faith. Therefore, we conclude that man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law, or is he uh, the God of the Jews only? Is he not also the God of the Gentiles? Yes, of the Gentiles also. Since there is one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith, do we then make void the law through faith? Certainly not. On the contrary, we establish the law. So the law is works. The law doesn't work. What does work? Faith. Scripture is clearly showing us that the law and faith are separate. They're two different things. You cannot call faith a work because the Bible says faith is not part of it. Faith is not a work. We do not have faith that if we do enough, we can be saved. We have faith that what needs to have been done is done. We do not have faith that if we are good enough, if we show God that we're committed enough, that we will one day be worthy of heaven. That is not what we do. Our faith is in the single truth that everything that needs to be done to earn our salvation is already done because we are incapable of doing it. That's what the word propitiation means, the substitution for a debt we could not pay ourselves. Jesus was that substitution. So he came and did everything we could not do so that we would have the choice to follow him or not. Because the law doesn't save, but faith does. But don't take that verse for it. Let's move on to another one. Romans 4, 1 through 5. You can turn there if you'd like. What then shall we say that Abraham, our father, has found uh, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does Scripture say? Abraham believed, and it was accounted him for righteousness. Not his works, his belief. 
Now to him who works, the wages are counted as grace, uh, not as grace, but as debt. But to him who does not work, but believes, work, believe, on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. Abraham's righteousness was in the fact that he believed, not what he did. Jesus is show, uh, wrote, uh, Paul is showing us that even way back in the Old Testament, faith and works were two completely different things. Even under the law, faith and works were two completely different things. Galatians 3, 1 through 6, Paul says, Oh foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Now listen, listen to what he's saying here. That you should not obey the truth before whose eyes Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed among you as crucified, this only I want to learn from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Two separate things. Works, faith. Are you, are you so foolish, having begun in the Spirit, are you now made perfect by the flesh? Have you suffered so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Therefore, he who supplies the Spirit to you uh, uh, and works miracles among you, does he do it by works of the law or by hearing of faith? Works, faith. Just as Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Going right back to the same example. There's works and there's belief that if you do the right thing, you'll be saved. And then there's faith that everything that, you need, that needs to be done for you to be saved has already happened. They're two very different things. I had a boatload of scriptures that say the exact same thing. But I decided to be nice and not go through all of them today. But it's all through the New Testament. And it's one of the reasons why if we follow this, when we choose to believe, we have a promise that's available to us in John 1, 12 through 13. It says, but as many as has received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God to those who believe in his name. What do you have to do to be given the right to become a child of God? Receive him. That's the language of choice. Who were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. So God gives us the right to be his which brings me to my last point, and I'll wrap this up, I hope, shortly. Hour, two hours tops, we'll be done. What do we do with Ephesians 1 through, uh, uh, chapter 1, verse 4? That verse 4 says, Just as he chose us in him before the foundations of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. People say, that, that sure sounds like we were chosen before the foundations of the world. How, how are we going to get away from that? What, what, what kind of scriptural gymnastics do we got to do to get past this? Uh, and it's actually none. Uh, you remember last week, one of the things that I, I, was, I was telling you was that whenever we have something that's translated from one language and culture into another, there's always something that's lost. And a lot of the things that get lost are, are this, this annoying grammatical term known as a qualifier. So in, in certain phrases, in certain passages, when you're reading something, especially something that's being described, if you're ever reading something that's actually being described, somewhere in that conversation, there's going to be a qualifying term that tells you who or what is applied to what's being described. I'll give me an example. If I were to say, gym members can use the locker room, what's the qualifier? Members, right? 
So now you know who is attached to what is being described. Well, there's a lot of this in, in Scripture, but we tend to look over it because in the translation, it kind of makes it a little difficult. So in this passage, I'm going to read verses 1 through 14, and I'm going to, I'm going to not tell you what the qualifier is, and, I want to, and I want, I'm hoping that you'll find it for yourself. No cheating, and I'm not going to help you, okay? Um, but I want you to see it because once you see the qualifier, this changes immediately from God being selective to God being open to whoever makes the choice, okay? So now let's, let's just see this. See, see if you can pick up on this. Remember, I'm not going to help you. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God to the saints who were in Ephesus and faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace to God our Father, the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him... Before the foundations of the world, we should be holy, and I'm not helping you, just, just pay attention. Be, before, uh, uh, <laughs> before him in love, having predestined us to the adoption as sons by Jesus, uh, by Jesus Christ to himself, according to his good pleasure, I'm sorry, the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of, of, of glory, excuse me, I need to slow down, to the praise of the glory of his peace by which he made us accepted in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood and the forgiveness of sin according to the riches of of his grace, which he made to abound to us towards us, uh, to abound towards us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he pur- uh, purposed in himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of time he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth, in him. In him also we have obtained inheritance. Stop laughing. I'm not helping you. Uh, so it, we, have, we have attained an inheritance being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, that we who first trusted in Christ should be, pray, that should be to the praise of his glory. In him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of our, your salvation, in whom also having believed you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession in the praise to the praise of his glory. What was the qualifying term? In him. Those in him. What was chosen before the foundations of the earth and predestined to be his representation was not you as an individual, it was the church as a whole. It is not God picking you out of time because you're so awesome. It was God choosing his bride. We are the bride of Christ. We are the chosen as a whole. This does not mean corporate salvation, by the way. It means all those, as he says at the very beginning, who were in Ephesus and faithful in Christ Jesus. The chosen and the end days are those who are faithful in Christ Jesus. This is the same language that was used to talk about the Hebrew nation in Old Testament times. They were the elect, not individually, but as a nation. And in the New Testament, nothing has changed. God's people are still God's people. 
but now you get to choose. You're not born into it. Parents, your kids may be, they may, may be born into your family. You may take them to church from the time they're a little, but that does not mean they're going to choose to embrace salvation by Christ. They still have to make that choice, and you are to lead them to that choice. But this verse, this section is talking about the church as a whole. And if you, if you look through the rest of it, look at the plural language that's used in some of this. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but it's there in yellow. To the saints, plural. To us, plural. He chose us in him, plural. Sons, plural. He made us accepted in the beloved, plural. He made known to us, plural. Uh, He made his grace abound towards us, plural. Um, That we, plural, uh, that we have obtained, that we uh, who first trusted, our inheritance. It's all plural language. So to take this passage and assign it to individuals is just wrong. Because God's talking about us, not necessarily you. So as the church, we can be referred to as the elect, but not as individuals. The church is chosen, predestined before the foundations of the earth to represent God in all things, to bring his message to a lost world. The church, or in New Testament times, it's known as the ecclesia, and that literally means those called forward. Not this. This is just a building. The church is always God's people, and that's what this is referring to. It's God's people. Paul is writing to the saints in Ephesus and those who are faithful in Christ Jesus. God is not looking for a select few. He is looking for all those who choose by faith to believe. In his sovereignty, he has granted us the opportunity to regain what was lost, to return to what we were created to be. But you have to make that choice. And as Christians, it is our job, and it is our only job, to give to any and everyone willing to listen the opportunity to make that choice. That's the goal, to believe the gospel, that the penalty that needs to be paid has already been paid. You don't have to do anything, but you need to believe. How do you know if someone believes? Because they live according to Scripture. That's how you believe. How can you say that you are one of mine and not do what I say? That's what Jesus tells us. We live according to his word. That means we follow him. It's that simple. It's almost too simple for some people. Most people believe it's got to be more difficult than that. Like, you know, I need to like, you know, prick my blood and sign something somewhere, right? Nope. All the blood that needs to be spilt for this has already been spilt. But believe me, it's the easiest decision you'll make and it's the hardest one you will ever make. Making the choice is easy. Walking it out is extremely difficult. Those of us who have been in the church for for long enough understand this. It's a day-to-day thing. How often are we supposed to take up our cross and follow Christ? Every day. Every day. I remember when I first became a Christian, I used to get saved every week. (laughs) Anybody else there? You know, yeah. I saved every week because I was saved Sunday till about, I don't know, 8 o'clock. You know, Uh, or whenever I got out of work and the shift drink was available. You ever worked in restaurants, and you know what I'm talking about. A lot of restaurants, at the end of the day, they give you a drink. 
You get to the end of the day, you're like, I'm not doing that anymore. And you get to the end of the day, you're like, ah, you know what? It was hot today. And that shift drink turns into you just lost half your paycheck at the bar kind of thing. And you just spend the rest of the week making stupid decisions. So you get back to church on Sunday, and boy, you hope God's grace is good enough for all the stupid things that you did throughout the week. But now what you realize is God's not mad at you when you fall. God's not mad at you when you sin. God's not mad at you when you do something stupid because he has already seen it happen. And he's there for you because he wants you to make it. We just have to believe. That's all you have to do is believe. Sounds so simple. But it is the hardest thing you will ever do in your life. It's easy to do when things are going well. It's really difficult when things are bad. We have a lot of faith in early November. We wonder where God is after the elections, you know. <laughs> Still the same place he was, waiting for us to choose to follow him. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, I want to thank you for the opportunity that you give us each day, each week, each moment of our lives to choose to follow you. Lord, we know that you are sovereign in all things. We know that you can do anything you want at any point in time you want. And we will trust you in all of your decisions. But Father, we ask that in your sovereignty, you help us understand that we still have a part to play in this process that we have to individually choose every day, every moment of every day, every choice, no matter how small, to lean it to you or to lean away, to walk in accordance to your word or to walk in accordance to myself, to follow you or to follow me. Father, help us to understand that that choice rests with us and help us to make that choice follow you every single day. Father, give us the strength to walk this out as you would have us, and give us the strength to share this opportunity with anyone willing to listen. We ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.